thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I am the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I'm thankful for you being a consistent and faithful listener. I've got a lot of good feedback over the past couple of weeks about some of the conversations we've been having about the differences between Calvinists and traditional Southern Baptists. Um, Leighton Flowers and I had a discussion last week that we hoped would be recorded and we could put on as a podcast. But after we got done with about an hour and a half conversation, we realized that it didn't record. And so both of us were a little bummed out because we were able to really address a lot of these issues and hopefully we'll do a future one but it was a good discussion to discuss uh, really the differences in um, our view of total inability, effectual calling, regeneration, and issues like that. And this uh, last week was the Southern Baptist Convention in Phoenix, and I did not have a chance to attend. I've attended uh, some in the past. I just did not have a chance to attend this year. But I did have a chance to look at some of the footage of the John or the Connect 316 dinner. Uh, they put they had a live Facebook feed where they had the speakers and the panel uh, that were speaking there, and, and I was able to listen to that, and I was actually through Leighton Flowers' I, um, iPhone, I think, he took footage of it, so I don't think the official video has been put up on their website, it was more his footage, and and so the audio is not that good, and, and I'm not sure when it's going to be up on their on their page, but I do want to just give the overall tenor um, of what was said. Um, again, nothing against the traditionalists, I think they're great men in Christ, I've had um, good friendships with these men. Men. Um, I respect them as scholars, as Southern Baptist statesmen. I think it's totally appropriate for them to have their own dinner and to have their own organization and to have their own networking and, and all of those things. I'm not against that at all. I just think there are some very distinct differences between what I would believe and what they would believe. And so a lot of them, uh, the, the speakers, were really hammering home on um, how people are saved. And basically, um, I, could, I could put it in a nutshell. Uh, they would say that people hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. God loves everyone. Jesus died for everyone. Everyone has the ability to believe using their free will and that they repent and believe when the gospel invitation is given. And that could come through vocalization of that repentance and faith through the sinner's prayer. And so they talked a lot about the Holy Spirit convicting and drawing and again, I, the, the, the difference that we would have is what is the nature of man and how powerful is the Holy Spirit in that convicting work? Um, and so what I want to do on this podcast is really talk about effectual calling in relation to what the scripture teaches about effectual calling and then contrast that with some statements by Steve Lemke. Now, Leighton Flowers and I did discuss this, that he has a differing view of Steve Lemke. I believe Steve Lemke, who's a professor of theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, I think he is an Arminian in the way that he expresses himself. And so I'm going to be taking some quotes directly from um, the chapter in uh, Whosoever Will, a Biblical Theological Critique of Five-Point Calvinism. It's edited by David Allen. 
who I've interacted with before, and Steve Lemke. Um, Steve Lemke wrote a chapter called A Biblical and Theological Critique of Irresistible Grace. And so um, I know his views may be a little different than some traditionalists. Um, he tends to have more of an Arminian viewpoint, but I think that it does stress the differences in what we're talking about. And so I don't want to misrepresent the traditionalists. As Leighton Flowers and I were talking about this, uh, I, I feel like I have somewhat of a niche in that. I want to accurately represent the traditionalist theology. And I've heard back from traditionalists that I've done an okay job in doing that. And so I don't want to mislabel them. I don't want to try to mischaracterize um, them. I'm, I'm hoping to understand them. And so the statements that I'm giving, I'm giving in good faith that I've, I've hopefully done my homework. And so in the traditionalist view of the gospel enablement, uh, because they believe that the gospel itself enables a response, they would say that God's prevenient grace in the gospel is necessary to bring a sinner to Christ, but it is not sufficient to bring about repentance and faith because the will of man is the final determiner. So, in the Arminian scheme, there is the traditional prevenient grace that comes in the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. In the traditionalist view, the prevenient grace, if you will, is the gospel itself. And so traditionalists, Arminians, Calvinists, we all believe in some type of prevenient grace. We're not Pelagians. We believe that God has to act in grace to bring about a response. The issue becomes, what does God actually do in that? And how is the response actually brought about? Because... In all of our views, um, grace is necessary. Grace is necessary. Even Roman Catholics will say grace is necessary uh, to bring about um, a salvation. Uh, no, no Protestant, Calvinist, Arminian, uh, traditionalist, um, unless you're a full-blown Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, uh, you would argue that um, grace is necessary. But it's not sufficient. Only, I believe, Calvinists can argue that grace is sufficient to bring about repentance and faith. It's both necessary and sufficient. The traditionalist and the Arminian would say it's necessary. God has to give grace, but it's a wooing grace. It's a drawing grace. It's an enabling grace. But ultimately, it's not sufficient to bring a sinner all the way to repentance and faith, for that would violate the person's will. Ultimately, libertarian free will kicks in, and the sinner then responds in their own free will to that necessary grace, but it's not sufficient. So we are the only um, theology that would say, that God's grace is necessary, God's grace is sufficient, and God's grace is sovereign in that it is efficacious. It effectually accomplishes that which brings a sinner all the way to repentance and faith. It cannot be resisted when God decides to move. Now, let me give you some wording from Steve Lemke from his chapter in Whosoever Will. Quote, the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces the sinner through enabling or prevenient grace, leading and enabling the person to respond in faith, resulting in regeneration, justification, and salvation. 
That's a very problematic statement. Because what it is saying is that the Holy Spirit can convict, the Holy Spirit convinces, the Holy Spirit enables, leads the person to respond in faith. And then once that person responds in faith, then they are regenerated. And so here's the the question that I have. Here's the rub. Here's the theological sticking point that I have with this whole language of the Holy Spirit convicting, convincing, enabling, leading. He does all of these things to enable a response. But if the sinner does not believe, if the sinner does not repent can we assume that the Holy Spirit was not powerful enough to fully convict or fully convince or fully lead or fully enable? In other words, does the Holy Spirit convince or convict or lead up to a point? And how exactly does this conviction, this convincing, this leading enable a sinner to respond? How come some sinners respond and some don't? If the Holy Spirit enables a response, why do some respond and others don't? What's the condition before in the unregenerate man that makes them unable to respond in faith that requires the Holy Spirit to convict, to convince? What exactly is the role of the Holy Spirit in this scheme? Because the language used is very confusing in my estimation. The Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit convinces, the Holy Spirit leads, the Holy Spirit enables the person to respond. Where we as Calvinists would say, yes, the Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit convinces. But we go beyond the Holy Spirit just enabling and leading. We would say the Holy Spirit actually sovereignly, efficaciously, effectually regenerates the dead sinner, granting them repentance and faith so that they infallibly will come to faith in Christ. Now, this is another statement from Steve Lemke from his book, or the chapter in the book. Quote, Humans can come to salvation only as they are urged to by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God's grace provides the necessary and sufficient conditions for salvation. However, God in his freedom has sovereignly decided that he will give the gift of salvation to those who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. If humans respond, he surrounds them with overpowering grace, impelling them forward until they come to the point of repentance and faith. Uh, He wants to kind of have his cake and eat it too. He wants to sound like a Calvinist, but actually he's acting like an Arminian. Humans come to salvation only as they are urged to by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're urged to come. God in his grace provides the necessary and sufficient conditions for salvation, which I don't know what those conditions are. I don't know if the conditions are repentance and faith, And he says, if humans respond, if humans respond to the urging, to the convicting, if the human responds, i.e. the human responds first to the, the enabling grace, then God surrounds them with overpowering grace, impelling them forward. Overpowering grace, impelling them forward. Now, we would not have problems as Calvinists with that statement. We believe in overpowering grace. We believe in sovereign grace. We believe in a grace that impels someone forward 
by granting them repentance and faith. But this type of overpowering grace that he's talking about is a grace that comes in response from God to the sinner's response to that enabling grace. And so it's classic prevenient grace the way he understands that. So let's talk about grace. Let's talk about effectual grace. You see, when we as Calvinists talk about grace, I think we're operating under a different definition than when traditionalists or Arminians talk about grace. When we as Calvinists talk about grace, we automatically assume, we automatically mean that that grace is sovereign, that that grace is efficacious. That the grace is not just an enabling or a wooing or a impelling, but it actually is going to overcome deadness. It's actually going to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. It's actually going to bring resurrection. It's actually going to make alive that God's grace is overpowering. God's grace is efficacious. God's grace is irresistible. Now, when an Arminian or a traditional Southern Baptist talks about grace, they will say that it is God's initiative to take the first move towards the sinner, that God graciously supplies the conditions necessary, God graciously gives man free will, God graciously offers salvation, and then if the sinner responds positively using the free will, then God promises to save them. So it's still a synergistic understanding of grace. What I want to do is I want to go to Romans chapter 8, because I think you can understand a lot about effectual calling or sovereign regeneration from Romans chapter 8. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read some key verses just to give us the context, to give us the audience, to give us the setting, uh, to kind of land us in the middle of Paul's argument here. This is in the middle of his, of his book of Romans. And if you know um, anything about the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 through 3 are speaking about the depravity, the rebellion, the, the universal sinfulness of humans, both Jew and Gentile. And then in the middle of chapter 3, he pivots to talk about uh, propitiation and God's gift of redemption through Jesus Christ. And then in the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he talks about justification by faith alone, that the way that we come to have um, Christ's righteousness imputed to us is by faith and then in chapter 5, he unpacks what that means and talks about how sin came into the world through Adam and compares the, the federal headship of Adam to the federal headship of Christ. And then in chapter 6, he talks about what it means to be new in Christ. And then 7 is, is a little bit about sanctification and the struggle that we have as, as, as believers in Christ. And then in chapter 8, um, he launches into really this whole discussion about um, the, the culmination of all of the salvation and how it works from first to last. And so in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's one of Paul's favorite expressions to talk about believers. Um, the word Christian, I think, only shows up three times. The actual term Christian shows up three times in the New Testament. Twice in the book of Acts, and I think once in 1 Peter chapter 4. The main way, especially that Paul describes us as believers, is those who are in Christ, or Christ in us. And Paul's argument here is that there's no condemnation. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, because we have trusted in Jesus alone for salvation. His righteousness has been imputed to us. Our sin has been imputed or accounted to Christ. We are no longer under condemnation. 
We are in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 9, he, he makes a distinction saying, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay, another description of believers. Not only are we in Christ, but we're not in the flesh. We are of the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We are no longer enslaved to the flesh. We're no longer in bondage to the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now we're adopted sons. So what's the identity of us as believers? Paul has been making so far in Romans chapter 8. We're in Christ. We're no longer under condemnation. We're not in the flesh, but we're in the spirit. We are adopted sons. We can cry, Abba, Father. These are just wonderful descriptions that Paul gives of those who are believers. And then we come to verses 28 through 30, which really comprises the, the golden chain of redemption. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in verse 30, I'm sorry, in verse 28, Paul gives some descriptions for a Christian. Now, we've already looked at some. We are in Christ. We're no longer under condemnation. We're adopted sons. We, we are not of the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit. But notice in verse 28 what he says. <clears throat> we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He gives two descriptions there of a believer. Those who, number one, love God. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are one who loves God. You've been adopted into God's family. You're a friend of God because you've been reconciled to him through Christ. You're no longer enemies. You love God because God first loved you. A description of you is you love God. The other description that Paul gives in that verse is that we have been called according to his purpose for those who are called. Very powerful word, called. And Paul says all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called. Now, the question then becomes, what's the actual nature of this call? In other words, is he talking about a general call that goes out to everybody and everybody has the innate ability to respond to this general call? Or is it a specific, efficacious, powerful, sovereign call that comes to the elect only and actually creates faith, actually births faith, actually accomplishes that regeneration? So let's just ask the question based upon that passage of Scripture. Does everyone who is outwardly called love God? Okay, so if it's an outward call, 
that just goes out to everybody and everybody has the ability to respond to it. It's not a specific or, or very efficacious call that defines those who have, have been sovereignly called. Does everyone who's outwardly called love God? Absolutely not. You, you have a worship service or you have a, uh, a revival or you have a situation where you are uh, maybe a street preacher or you're talking to a youth group or, or you have a children at vacation Bible school, however you look at it, when you have a large audience of people, there are going to be some that are called to Christ in the gospel outwardly who will not be called inwardly and they're not going to love God. The other question would become, does everyone outwardly called have the Holy Spirit? Does everyone who's outwardly called been adopted into God's family? Is everyone who's outwardly called in Christ? No. Those who are called are those who are specifically and specially called to salvation. So we, we have to say that those who are called are a specific group of people who are believers. Now, the question becomes, is this calling effectual? Is it sovereign? In other words, the question is, when God calls these people, will they infallibly come to faith in Christ? Will they indeed respond in repentance and faith? Or to put it another way, will the effectual call actually create the faith that is required for coming to salvation in Christ? Now, the traditional Southern Baptist would say no that it is not a sovereign call. It's not an effectual call. They don't distinguish between two different types of calls. They, they deny a specific, special, um, effectual call. They say that people can resist the call. The call is not efficacious, that the general gospel goes out, and once the general gospel goes out to everyone and through the power of the Holy Spirit convicting and through the grace that comes in the gospel call outwardly, that's enough to enable everyone to use their free will to come to faith. So there is no internal special efficacious call in the traditionalist view. It's an outward call. In other words... Everybody has the innate ability to respond to the call when the call is given. But we also have verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, the text will not allow someone to be foreknown, someone to be predestined, but not at the same time called, justified, and glorified. In other words, it's a golden chain. The, the same people that are predestined are the same people that are called or the same people that are justified or the same people that are glorified. There's no seepage in, in the chain. There, there's no unlinking of the links. The, the same group of people, the same um, reality is, is from first to last is done for, for all of them. Uh, the question then becomes, well, what type of calling is this in Romans 8? Is it a general gospel call to all people? If that's so... If it's a general gospel call to all people, based upon the text, that would lead to universalism. 
Now you say, well, why would that lead to universalism? Because every single person who is called is also justified and glorified. And so if you say the general gospel call goes out to all people, then based upon the text, everyone who's called is also justified and glorified. And if you take that leap, then you're saying then that therefore every single person who's called has to be justified, has to be glorified, leading to everybody being saved. And we know that's not true. We know when the gospel call is sent forth, many reject it, they don't believe it, and are never justified. Paul does not say in this text that out of those whom God calls, some are justified and some are glorified. Now that's what a traditionalist Southern Baptist reading might understand of that. That the gospel call goes out generally and some will be justified and some will be glorified because they responded to the call. But Paul does not make that equivocation. The text is very clear. Paul is very clear to say it's that the, the same thing happens for the same group of people. Those who are predestined are the same who are called, are the same who are justified, are the same who are glorified. There's no seepage. There's no unbreaking of the links in the golden chain. So the calling here must refer to a sovereign and efficacious call that actually results in saving faith that justifies. And it also can't be a general call because Paul promises that those called will also be glorified, which demonstrates that the calling will produce saving faith that perseveres to the end. So notice the order of salvation in this passage of Scripture. Predestination, then calling, then justification, then glorification. Now, I do not think that Paul is giving a comprehensive list here of the every aspect of the order of salutis, of the order of salvation. He's not talking about regeneration. He's not talking about sanctification. Uh, there's not um, conversion in there. there. There's a lot of things that we in systematic theology and the order of salvation uh, that, that are left out. But let me just ask you a question, though. In the context of Romans, especially chapter 5 through 8, what is the, the one big ticket issue that Paul has been hammering on, especially even back in chapter 4? It's through faith. Romans 5.1, Therefore, we've been justified by faith. So, faith comes first and then through faith we are justified. So justification comes after we exercise faith. But what comes before faith? Well, in that passage of Scripture, you've got calling and then justification. And so we could say it this way, in Paul's mind... And we, I think you can see this corroborated in other places like Ephesians chapter 2 and other places. The calling actually produces the faith that justifies. Now, now let me say that again. It's a very tight chain. Let's talk about the chain for a moment. There is a definite number of elect individuals 
that God set his foreknowledge and predestinating love on in eternity past before the foundation of the world. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love. He predestined us for adoption as sons. That's Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's this giving of the Father, a people to Jesus called the elect, those who have been predestined before the foundation of the world. Those same people will be effectually called. It's an inward, it's an internal, internal efficacious call. It's a calling that actually will produce faith. Just like when Lazarus was called out of the tomb, when Jesus in John chapter 11 says, Lazarus, come out, he came out because the call produced the response. So in the calling of the elect, God in his sovereignty in the internal call through the call itself creates faith, grants repentance and faith as a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, tell us that faith itself is a gift of God. How does that faith come? That faith comes through the effectual call. Once the effectual call comes, once faith is created, birthed, someone's made alive, they then are regenerated, they're given the gifts of repentance and faith, you personally exercise faith, and then when you exercise faith, you are justified. And then eventually you are glorified. And Paul uses glorified in the past tense there, even though it's a future reality, to show us that in God's mind, the comprehensive nature of our salvation is a done deal from first to last. So those whom he predestined will infallibly come to faith when called. The call will create the faith. When they come to faith, they will infallibly be justified. Christ's righteousness will be imputed to them. That will be true saving faith that will last to the end. And they will be glorified in the end. They will not lose their salvation. And Paul goes on at the end of chapter 8 to talk about that. Now, in the traditionalist view, God calls out to sinners generally. It's a general call. There's no efficacious call. There's no internal, specific, um, effectual call that creates faith. It's a general call that goes out because everybody has the ability in their libertarian free will to accept or reject the call. Some who will call will never exercise saving faith. They'll never be justified. They'll be called, but the call will not be efficacious and sovereign and, and actually bring a sinner all the way to saving faith. So in their view, you could have some that are called but not justified and glorified. Whereas we look at that passage of Scripture and say, all those for whom God predestined unto life will infallibly be called and they will infallibly be given the gift of faith in regeneration and that will be saving faith that actually brings about justification that will actually bring about glorification. And so we see the golden chain of redemption there in Romans chapter 8 clearly teaching effectual calling. Now what about other places in the Bible that teach effectual calling? Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
verse 9. Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into fellowship with his Son. This is an effectual calling. How can those who reject the call be in fellowship with Christ. The call here is effectual in that it brings us into fellowship with Christ. Now Paul goes on in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, to basically give us some more information, some more teaching about God's choosing, God's calling, and he's been making this dichotomy in the foolishness of the cross and how the cross is foolish to a lost and dying world, but to those who are being called, those are to being saved. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. For the word or the logos, the message, the word of the cross is folly, is moronic, is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the sermon I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 24, but to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is very clear here that those who are being called are those who do not see the cross as foolish. There's two groups. There's a group that are being saved. There's a group that are perishing. Those who are perishing look at the cross. It is foolishness. So how does one go from seeing the cross as foolish to seeing the cross as beautiful? Is it their libertarian free will when somebody gives them the gospel and they say, wow, that makes sense. Um, I think I'm going to accept it because um, it all clicks for me. Or is the nature of man more depraved than that? Is it to where... We are so dead and rebellious and offended by the gospel that God has to effectually call us out of a, a nature of sin sovereignly so that we will indeed see the glory of the cross, see that it's not foolish when Christ is preached. It's not a stumbling block. It's actually beautiful to us. And then the actual call itself creates the faith for us to accept the beauty of the gospel. So there is an effectual call there. And then let's go on and continue reading verses 26-31. For consider your calling, brothers... Now, is that a call to everybody? 
or is that an effectual call that only results in brothers and sisters being being created, that, that the call creates faith? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no man might boast in the presence of God and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let no one but let the one who boasts boast in the Lord Paul here links calling with election consider your calling brothers how did your calling come about your calling came about because of God's elective choice God chose you That goes back to what we saw in Romans. What comes first? God's choosing. God's predestination. In eternity past, God chose individuals to be saved. And then in time, the effectual call came to them. Consider your calling. How did you know that calling came to you? Well, it's because God predestined you. God chose you. He called you. And when the call came, you had faith that was given to you as a gift because Christ was preached and before it was moronic, before it was foolish, before um, it, it was offensive, but then Christ, op- the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see the glory and beauty of the cross. The effectual call created the faith that justifies, and that's a result of the calling as a result of the choosing, the predestination. And so it's very consistent in Paul's theology to see this. What about Hebrews? You say, well, I don't remember Hebrews teaching anything about effectual calling. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore he, this is speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. What do those who are called receive? the promised eternal inheritance. Does everyone who's outwardly called receive this promise or only those who come to faith in Christ? You see, if the outward call simply just enables people to use their free will and some reject it and some um, accept it, then it doesn't link to all of these verses that teach about God's order of salvation in the election, the predestination, the calling, the creating of faith, the birthing of faith, the granting of faith, the regeneration, the justification, all these things. And so when Calvinists come up with an order of salvation, an order salutis, it's been very thought out from numerous scriptures that have given us a total picture of how this comes about. We also see this in Second Peter. Verses 1 through 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm, confirm what? Two things, your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Hmm. Peter seems to link calling and election together. Confirm. It echoes what Paul teaches in Romans 8 by linking Election or predestination with calling. We're to confirm that we have truly been chosen by God, we've been predestined, and that we've been called to salvation. And in the traditionalist viewpoint, God calls everyone. There's no internal effectual call. 
and there's no particular unconditional election of individual sinners before the foundation of the world. It's basically a corporate election, or some would see an Arminian foreknowledge view. The verse teaches that those who are elected are also called. Now the question then becomes, how do you confirm this? How do you confirm your calling and election? Uh, notice we're passive in these. We, we don't elect ourselves. We don't call ourselves. These are things that have happened to us that we're supposed to confirm. Um, and Peter gives the answer. You know, in that passage of Scripture, if you go back up and read, he talks about these Christian virtues that, that, that are added to your life. If you're growing, if you're abounding in these Christian virtues, it's evidence that you truly have been saved. Have you repented and believed in Jesus? Are you demonstrating fruit? Your faith and your perseverance is a, re- is a result of the election and the calling, not a cause. Uh, it's very interesting, too, because that wording, your calling and election, could actually be your elective calling. Your elective calling, the way it's worded in the original Greek. So even Peter talks about a calling that's related to election. And so we as Calvinists would look at these scriptures that teach a cohesive way that God from first to last brings about the salvation of a sinner. So again, let me contrast what we as a Calvinist or Calvinist would say about how a person is saved. And then let me give you, again, the, the many things that I heard on the Connect 316 dinner um, live Facebook feed uh, from the speakers. Okay? So here's what we as Calvinists would say the Bible teaches. God in eternity past, who was not under any obligation to save anyone or to choose anyone because all people are fallen in Adam, All people are depraved. All people are rebels. Nobody deserves grace. Nobody deserves salvation. God is not obligated or beholden to anyone. But in his sovereign good pleasure, according to the purpose of his will and his will alone, he chose in eternity past to set his electing love on a certain and definite number of people that no man can count and predestined them to be saved. In time, through the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit, God will effectually and sovereignly call those and only those whom He predestined to salvation. And it's an internal call that goes into the very heart of a lost person to where their will is in bondage, is overcome. The call itself creates the faith that is required to be justified. God grants repentance and faith as a gift in the sovereign call. A sinner is then liberated in their will, which was in bondage, and they freely place their faith in Christ. They joyfully do that because their will has been liberated from bondage through the effectual call. And once they repent and believe, their sins are credited to Christ. His righteousness is credited to them. This imputed, this double imputation of righteousness and sin 
Um, the, this transaction that takes place, then a sinner is justified, is not under condemnation, and that is true saving faith that will last to the end where there will be a persevering and a faith and an enduring faith to the end to where that sinner who was saved by grace will eventually be glorified in heaven and will never lose his or her salvation. So salvation from first to last is a sovereign work of God, from God's predestination to his calling to his regeneration to his granting of repentance of faith to justification to regeneration, I mean to sanctification to glorification all the way through. What I heard at the Connect 316 traditionalist was that How people are saved is that they hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit convicts. He draws. He woos. He leads. God has done everything he can do in sending Jesus. Everybody is savable. They have the ability to believe. And they can, when presented the gospel and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through their libertarian free will, be enabled to respond in repentance and faith. And then, after they respond in repentance and faith, they are then regenerated and born again. And I think it was Dr. Land, Richard Land, who was the former president of the ERLC. Um, he made a statement that God never predestined a human being to go to hell. God never predestined a human being to go to hell. Now, the scripture may not clearly say explicitly that God predestined people to hell, but by inference, if God chooses an elect people to be saved, and it's God's sovereign choice, then the logical and the theological inference is that God did not choose others. God left them in their sin. God left them in a state of depravity. God did not proactively act in a way to overcome their deadness and to bring them to faith through an irresistible grace or effectual calling. And so left in that state of depravity, left in that state of rebellion, they get the just desserts for the rebellion, which is hell, which in a sense... Because God predestines sinners to heaven to be saved and others he passes over, we have to infer that God does not choose everyone. And you also have to look at Revelation chapter 13 and other places where um, there's people's names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so there's some difficult um, doctrinal differences between us and um, the, the traditional Southern Baptists. Uh, And I think a lot of times, this may be a conversation for another podcast, I think there's a conflation or confusing between salvation and regeneration. I think they lump, I think they lump regeneration as the whole aspect of salvation and they don't really break that out or parse that out maybe as precisely as we would in this whole idea of, uh, of the role of regeneration. 
And so there's a lot of differences between the traditionalists. I don't want to paint them all with a broad brush. Uh, Steve Lemke obviously is more of an Arminian leaning. Um, and talking with Leighton Flowers, he, he disagrees with Lemke on some issues. Uh, Leighton Flowers would say the gospel is the power of God under salvation. And it, it, it sinners are able to respond to God's gracious appeal to be reconciled. And that we have the ability to, to, to respond. That there's not an innate or inborn inability due to Adam's fall. Um, and so when you look at the differences between traditionalists and Calvinists, differences in the doctrine of election. We believe in unconditional election. They believe in corporate election. Differences in the total depravity and inability of man. They believe in total depravity, but they don't believe in total inability. The differences in the gospel calls. They only believe in an outward gospel call that's enough to enable response. We believe in the outward call as well as the sovereign inward effectual call of the gospel. We believe that regeneration precedes faith. They believe that we believe and then are regenerated as a result of our believing. And so there's a lot of differences between the traditional Southern Baptist and us as Reformed um, in our theology. And so we just need to be aware of that. Uh, one thing that is hopeful is that we continue to have conversations. Um, there's a, a couple of Facebook groups that I'm in where the conversations are cordial. Um, they're good conversations. I've been in some um, online um, platforms or social media situations where it can get ugly. And so I would just say this. Um, you, it's great to have disagreements over um, secondary issues of soteriology and of um, understandings of salvation. These are not dogmas. These are not hills that we're going to die on. At least they're not hills that I'm going to die on. These are secondary issues that we can have strong convictions about. But especially as Southern Baptists, if you're a listener and you're in the Southern Baptist tribe, um, we need to learn to get along and play in the sandbox together because there's going to come a day in the future where the world is not going to care one way or the other whether regeneration precedes faith or whether you have an altar call or whether you say the sinner's prayer they're going to be beating down our doors with persecution and hatred and so we need to stand together on the essentials right now it's important to formulate these differences and there may come a day when we may have to part ways there may come a day when there's two major factions within the SBC I don't know I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet to know that um, I just know that right now why things are, are somewhat calm and we have peace in our convention we need to learn to get along we need to learn to, um, to really talk and I think it's important so many times you can hide behind the keyboard um, you can launch vitriol from a podcast or from a blog post or from a Facebook response or from a tweet. And I think that in our day and age of social media, it has really made um, level-headed, uh, cool-headed, um, cordial dialogue uh, few and far between. Um, I appreciated the times that I've talked with and, and the times that I've talked with Braxton Hunter, the times I've interacted with Dr. Harwood, Adam Harwood, the times that I've interacted with Leighton Flowers. Um, these traditional Southern Baptists, I've been respectful, even Rick Patrick, we've had great um, interactions and I want to respect these men. Um, I don't want to label these men. I don't want to do anything to disparage these men. Um, I believe they love Jesus. I believe that they are serving the Lord to the best of their ability by his grace. 
Um, I think they're representing Southern Baptists well. They believe in inerrancy. Uh, they believe that Jesus is the only way. We stand on the authority of God's word. Um, and so there's a lot more that we have in common than we have in differences. And so I would just make an appeal to those of you who are my listeners that sometimes you may get riled up. Um, it's good to get riled up. I get riled up from time to time, but it's good sometimes just to take a step back, know what you believe and why, be able to defend it, be able to solidly defend it, cogently, exegetically defend it, but do it in a way that's kind. Do it in a way that is, is charitable. Do it in a way that, that, that you would want to be treated. Um, you, you don't want to have your ideas just shot down. You don't want to have your thoughts just um, ramrodded or, or misrepresented or straw men. Um, and so I would just say treat people with respect. And um, it's it just the more I'm seeing the things that are happening on social media, uh, there's just so much vitriol. There's so much misunderstanding. There's so much um, just just hate hateful speech out there coming from from believers and, and I know that there's a lot of younger <laughs> cage stage Calvinist and younger cage stage traditionalists that that need to to learn to, to to get along and to be more charitable and so I don't mean to sound preachy I don't mean to sound like I'm not standing up for truth or maybe you think man he's equivocated I've not equivocated one bit I I, I strongly believe what I believe um, I, I believe exegetically, theologically, biblically what I believe. I've come to these conclusions through study, through hours and hours of study in the original languages. I know what I believe and why. Um, I just think that we need to be charitable in how we communicate that and be willing to listen. One of the key things in understanding other people's arguments is to listen to what they actually believe and try to espouse back to them as best you can what you think their belief system is to where they would say, yeah, that's pretty close to what I would believe. Thanks for representing me that way. Now we can have a conversation because you actually know what I believe. And so I try really hard to do that. I try hard to model that. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've fallen short. There may be some people on this podcast say, man, he got it totally wrong. He misrepresented us. That's not what we believe. Or, or um, he's a whack job. I have no idea who this Pastor Sean is. Um, <laughs> I receive that with, with grace and, uh, and understand that. So, again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Um, if you go to um, Apple Podcast, which was formerly iTunes, now Apple Podcast, you can give us a review and rating positively that will increase our exposure. Uh, you can share this on your favorite social media platform through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can go to seancole.net to get my contact information if you want to send me an email or contact me. I'd love to have some correspondence. If you have a question that you'd like for me to answer on a future podcast, I'd love to discuss that as well. And so until next time, uh, God, God bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And will you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? <laughs>